Well, let's see what we got here. Let's see. Horse Face Lee, Slim Miller, Suitcase Murphy, and the Big Alabama in from New Orleans. Crying Jonesy and the Boone Kid from Denver. Duffy Burke and Limehouse Chappie from New York. Well, these and the guys outside should give you 30 or more to choose from. Glad to meet you, kid. You're a real horse's ass. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the IMMP, the Intermillennium Media Project Podcast. For your dose of nostalgia, media criticism, and misuse of parental authority. <laughs> my name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and we've watched a movie from, from way back in my youth. Aha! From 1973. Oh my goodness. Ah. But I think I see what the connection is to our previous outing. <laughs> yes. It's Robert Redford again. Robert Redford in a movie released 11 years before The Natural. We're yeah. watching The Sting. Which sounds like a superhero movie. Well, it's it's that movie that's all about Bilbo Baggins' sword, which is a bold choice. <laughs> but, you know, it was an interesting way to go in, for Hollywood. Not quite, but this yeah. is uh, this one is uh, starring Robert Redford and Paul Newman, a a complicated caper thriller kind of thing about about professional heist and grifters. We're a little bit out of order because this is the second of two movies that uh, Redford and Newman made together. The first one was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid from several years earlier. Oh, uh, and while that movie is highly regarded, the, the I think it was um, Goldman was the screenwriter, terrific writer, but that movie never may, meant as much to me as The Sting did. I I saw Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and I saw it many years later, but The Sting I saw in a movie theater in mm-hmm. 1973 or 74, so it was mind boggling. I I could not follow what was going on. It was a little a little bit less comprehensible than 2001 A Space Odyssey, which I saw around the same time. Oh, goodness. But I just it was still fascinating to watch. I knew something complex and complicated and cool was going on, and these guys looked so cool doing it that, uh, you know, they, they had me. And this is a movie that, uh, that my dad liked. That's why we wound up going to a theater to see it. Okay, I was going to say, this definitely felt like that kind of movie in that sense. This definitely had that kind of pop-pop styling to it to some extent. Yep. So yeah, it's it's set in 1936 on the depths of the Depression, and it is a movie about uh, a grifters and a big complicated con. And I had a feeling that, Ian, that you might like this movie because you have enjoyed things like Leverage and other mm-hmm. things that have this kind of the inside machinations of the con. Oh my goodness, I love that kind of thing, where it's like, show me the dominoes, and then knock them over. Ooh, <laughs> yes, I love, that 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 does, so, this definitely was, tar- like, I could feel this targeting that excitement for me. 
And I was very fascinated with how like stylistic this is, but not in a like unrealistic way. This is just certain parts of the culture at the time, certain style aspects are heightened. Really yeah. early on, we get a very good establishing shot of this being during the Great Depression. And we see the people and everything else. As we pan across, we start following someone and they go into a building that looks nondescript and it turns out that it's this little casino inside. And we see this distinct difference between the people outside with nothing and suddenly there's a lot of money changing hands inside this room. And they're doing this big count for the, the games they've been running and such. And that right there is a transition point that tells you this takes place during the Depression, but we're focused on a very specific sliver that is holding on tightly to a very specific income source and a very, a very tiny, a smaller community that is happening during this larger event. And that was very fascinating because that kind of honing in sets a tone for the rest of the film. That's a great observation. The, the production design has a huge role in actually telling the story in this movie, more so than in some stories, because you're right, it, is, it sets the production design helps set up the sides, who, who has money, who doesn't, who's desperate, and who is working to change that balance. And we see, we see the opulence in which the mobsters live. We see the desperation in which so many others live. And then we see the grifters, the people who are trying to change that balance. And part of what they have to do is their own production design. We see them deciding to set up a long con, and it involves renting this big space and turning it into a fancy betting parlor and getting all their buddies dressed up in suits and playing roles. And production design is a big part of what the con has to be. Absolutely. There's this, this is kind of like weaponized theater craft in that sense. <laughs> and in a, in a story that has done a good job of setting up how rough everything else is, the fact that they have enough to be able to invest that much into pulling off this con is kind of a sign about the scale and scope of this. Yes. And it's, it's also learning that process. So we get a chance to kind of understand it as that time goes on. We, we start out with, uh, with Robert Redford. Actually, well, we start out with seeing some of what the mob does as a business. It's all about collecting the money from their numbers rackets and making sure the reports get to the head office and somebody has to be on the train from Joliet to Chicago to bring the money for that day in. And then we meet Robert Redford. Mm -hmm. We see him executing a con, and then we find out that it's a con. Exactly. And we see him. It's, it's a pretty small-time, simple con involving three guys, one pretending to rob the other, the third pretending to be a bystander, roping in a fourth bystander and doing a switch to get the fourth bystander's money. It's kind of a small-time, simple con, but it sets off a lot of things because the bystander they happen to rope in as their mark was the runner for the numbers racket who was carrying a whole lot of money that belonged to uh, Mr. Lonigan, played by yes. Robert Shaw, who was, is the, the 
the big Irish mobster based in New York, but with this big operation in Chicago. Yeah, there's there's something of kind of a not a meat cute, but a a pickpocket cute between <laughs> these two groups in that sense, because realizing that they've gotten he's gotten a hook into possibly this larger source than they thought, right? It immediately becomes a problem because it puts his friend and partner's life at risk. And now there's this mix of a big score and revenge that fuels finding the man who can run a con on a target this big and learning how the con is run once we get it started and playing out this giant, you know, mechanical operation of place to place and people pretending to be other people in a thing and switching things around just to be able to get this this other con artist and mobster yeah it it quickly goes from oh my gosh what terrific look the mark that we happened to pick was was loaded had tons of money then it goes to oh the person who this money belongs to is going to be coming back and they do yeah and that means that redford's character john hooker has to leave joliet one step ahead of the the mobsters torpedoes and goes to Chicago and he goes to find the guy that his partner, his his Grifter Yoda, who taught him everything. His Grifter Obi-Wan tells him to go find Grifter Yoda. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> that's a better way to put it. He goes to Chicago instead of Dagobah. And he finds both places where you can recover an old piece of uh, an old vehicle out of a <laughs> rough situation and patch it up before it can move forward again. Yay! And Chicago is where he finds Henry Gondorf, played by Paul Newman. And Gondorf, Gondorf calls for aid. Um, uh, Hooker's uh, sensei had essentially told him, I'm getting out, but you got to go meet Gondorf. Because he can teach you how to do the long con, the big con that's going to make you rich. I'm I'm old. I'm getting out of the game. Mm-hmm. And you know, Hooker doesn't want this change. He wants to stay with his teacher. He doesn't know this Gondorf guy that his teacher is, is sending him to. And when he finds Gondorf, he's not too impressed. Because he finds a drunkard who is working, running a merry-go-round that's a cover for a house of ill repute. And essentially just lying low because of a big federal rap he's got. It, that, it very much does fit the go find the wise teacher. Oh, he's just a little green guy in a hut in a swamp. Like, <laughs> oh, you're just running a merry-go-round. Okay, there's a little bit more going on with if there's this much <laughs> happening in the walls of the building of the merry-go-round. But still, and we kind of learn more and more about just how like careful and set up and connected this mentor figure is and hooker goes to gondorf not just to learn what he next needs to learn the way his uh, his teacher had recommended but he's now got a mission because mm-hmm. the big mobster uh, lonigan's guys got the teacher and hooker wants revenge and i like the way that initial conversation he has with gondorf goes in that he's saying that you know, he wants to take Lonigan for as much as he possibly can. And the reason is, essentially, he knows how to be a grifter. He doesn't know enough about killing to kill him. So he wants to get revenge in the way that he can. 
which is to take him for a whole lot of money. That works. And that that's works a, quite well. <laughs> and that's a tension. You get the, uh, Gondorf kind of warns against having too much emotion in it. You've got to you've got to make a goal as to how much you're going to take this for this guy for and how and and that's got to have to be enough. And mm-hmm. you have to be willing to pull the plug if you have to. If something goes too wrong, somebody gets onto you, you've got to pull the plug. And somebody who's motivated by revenge isn't going to be very quick to pull the plug if he has to. No. It may it makes Gondorf the the steady mentor. And it makes uh it it, it makes Hooker this kind of energetic wild card and we see early on that hooker is there like doing the cons and such but he blows everything he gets on betting later and he's always been kind of this motivated by the emotion of it guy <laughs> to so e- yeah to extend our our comparison there uh hooker is bringing fear and hatred into this yes so that's the path to the dark side but now i'm wishing for a scene in which hooker goes into a cave and beats somebody at three card monty and it turns out he's just taken himself (laughs) that would be really good it would Uh, in some ways he does that by giving a police officer fake cash early on which then becomes a constant self-haunting problem pretty much yeah so in addition to lonigan being after hooker this joliet cop is after hooker because the cop wanted a payoff not to turn hooker into lonigan and like you say hooker gave him counterfeit money exactly (laughs) so there are lots of different groups lots of different uh layers in this and later mm-hmm. on, the FBI comes in, and that becomes yet another layer because they're after Gondorf because of the federal beef that Gondorf had. And as things get more intense and uh, Hooker is still yet to be found, our mob boss, Lonigan puts out a call of a hit on him. And while there are specific people hired to go hunt down Hooker, there's a bit of an internal rivalry of hitmen that also becomes another layer because there's hitmen removing and responding to other hitmen, seeing who gets the who can take this guy down and get the credit and reward for doing so. It turns out that the guys who who took out Hooker's teacher were not able to get Hooker's, so they've got this this new person in. So we've even got these conflicts between the the police and the FBI. We've got conflicts between different hitmen all working for Lonigan. We've got the fact that Lonigan needs to pursue this because if he doesn't, that's a sign of weakness and other uh, mob bosses are going to move in on his operations. So, yeah, there's all these different factions at odds with one another. And yet somehow that doesn't make it doesn't muddy the movie. It makes it complicated, but not too complicated to follow. It's, It's very finely tuned in that way. Honestly, there, when we described it, comparing it to leverage, it's a lot of that. But imagine if you were able to stack multiple episodes of leverage in complexity, one after another, huh. in, into a giant thing in that sense. Because you're stealing from bad guys who are also thieves and crooks and such, very leveragey. Yeah. But the complexity of like an episode of a TV series only gets two or three deep. But this is stacking so many layers and so many gears nesting to each other that it's it's multiple of those complexities ah. intensity. I like that. Yeah, that's good. And 
we don't really have to go through the plot of this in detail because in some ways it's too complex to do that. And in some ways it's it's structured so well that you can take the interesting pieces out of it to discuss. The very fact that it is broken up into chapters the way it is with it's full chapter much- cards. It's a very uh, Saturday Look Evening like- Post kind of yeah. Uh, of design, all of the 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 chapter cards look like Saturday Evening Post covers. I, I believe I described them as crime Norman Rockwells at one point. <laughs> yes, very much, and that kind of it kind of sets the it's it's another part of the production design that puts you in the right location at the right time. In terms of the music, this is using a lot of ragtime. Yeah, a lot of old anachronistic for what it is ragtime. This is. Like, this is what apparently made the song The Entertainer popular. Yeah, that was written by Scott Joplin in, I think, 1902. So that was an old song. It was an oldie even in 1936. And yet it works for this movie. And yeah, in 1973, that became a hit again. It would, it's just kind of, kind of wild in that sense. You know, set, set a modern uh, heist film with someone going past the laser tripwires and score it with big band music. <laughs> like, that would just be interesting, but it's just a very different kind of feel. Yeah. It, it does another job of uh, separating this little world that is passing silently through the historical time period that it's in. Because it's full of anachronistic things. It's full of people who can slide in and out of characters. Mm-hmm. And we watch... We watch one actor playing a character, but the character they're playing is someone who can put on multiple different other faces and characters. Yes. And so we've got layered plots of who is of like groups dealing with groups and interacting. And even inside of those, you've got layered performances of people playing people to perform and convince a different actor's character something. And you get to watch motivations of the character someone is playing come through in the character their character is playing. And I like the way they presented that. When we see them setting up the long con, they're setting up the fake betting parlor. They need a few hundred guys to make this look like a big ongoing operation. So they're essentially interviewing and to some extent auditioning this little army of grifters. And some of them are coming in with it's like they are at a casting call for little supporting or uh, or background roles where here are, here are the three characters I'm best at. My specialty is an English guy. I've got all my clothes and makeup here, so you don't even have to give me a suit. Uh, it's, it's very much a, a theatrical audition, and yet the the production for which they're auditioning is this grift. Yeah, it's rare that you get to see a movie in which someone else is showing someone else how to put on costume makeup. Right. But that's an entire little scene in here, which is part of an entire little almost side story in its own (laughs) little parallel going on. And I could see somebody whose passion was performing and inhabiting characters enjoying this because the stakes couldn't be higher it's not just what kind of reviews do we get do we sell enough tickets to stay open it's can we convince the mobster and take him for hundreds of thousands of dollars oh yeah and you can't quite tell did you start as a grifter (laughs) who learned these skills or did you start as an actor who 
couldn't keep going because of what the outside world's become like. And the grifting gives you a chance to keep your skill set. Well, I just kind of, I don't know. I don't (laughs) know because there's characters I could see either way in some of the performances we see. I suspect there's a lot of back and forth between those two worlds in this setting. Yeah. You know, one week he's in a little regional theater and the next week he's uh, changing his makeup and he's part of some grift. But yeah, this is this is just this 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 like flaky croissant of layered <laughs> performance and layered story, and there's a lot of as any sort of like heist story will have. There's fun moments where the plan works and you get to see everything come to fruition, <laughs> and there's moments when something changes and you get to see people think fast and try to try to maneuver and come up with a new plan in a short span of time yeah there just are just enough of those times when something has gone wrong and you've really got to wonder do they have to fold the con or can they figure a way out of it and that's one of the things that lends tension to the the movie in addition to the fact that there are hitmen wandering around trying to find hooker and there are cops all over trying to find them and That's heightened by the fact that there, as you say, there are these layers within layers. For example, the big con has to do with convincing Lonigan, this New York mob boss, to place a a really big bet at this fake betting parlor. But to do that, they have to get him to know the owner of this betting parlor, uh, somebody named Shaw, but who's actually Gondorf. And he has to, they have to set him up with a certain animosity to Shaw. They have to make him not like this guy who runs the betting parlor. So that means they have to get Shaw in on the this card game that Lonigan runs on the train from yeah. New York to Chicago. But then they have to... In, that also means they have to cheat at cards. And before all of this, they have to pickpocket Shaw's wallet... And it's like all these little tiny grifts or scams that feed bigger ones, that feed bigger ones. And if any one of them goes wrong, they have to decide, do we do we stop or do we figure out a way to go on? And we also get to see the mechanics of each one of these different kinds of cons. By your grifts combined, I am Captain Con Man! <laughs> it's this brilliant Voltron combination of miniature cons and miniature grifts, some of which have to remain secret, some of which you have to get caught in the right way just to make it all work. <laughs> That's great. So, yeah, there's. I, I kind of don't like watching the gears turn is part of what this movie did and it was so fascinating to get to see how that played out and it's it's filmed in a an interesting way because it'll it'll move following our characters but they have fun keeping the tone matching the moment you'll do these cinematic shots mid grift and then someone if someone winds up chasing someone else and you just get panning like parkour video shots of someone running down an alleyway and dodging down a a hallway because oh no that guy's gun i can't get shot please and i was like yeah there was something just very modern about the cinematography in that sense because this clashing at times differences in video style is something i've not seen in older films as much usually it sticks to one or the other 
but this felt almost almost YouTube-esque in its sliding from from style to style and shot to shot at times. Yeah, this is kind of a transitional movie in that sense, in that in the 70s, there are two styles that really come to the forefront. One is kind of a gritty realist style, which you see in a lot of crime movies in the 70s. And the other, really starting with Jaws, is the the polished, perfectly machined uh, blockbuster. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of a transition. It moves from those late 60s movies, more like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which are are heightened and stylized, and it moves into some of that gritty realism of the 70s, but it's still featuring these movie stars you can't take your eyes off of, and who play against one another so well that it's just inherently stylized whenever you've got these guys in something this contrived there's just a, the, the, this is a lot of style it is is, is a lot of uh, is, the acting is excellent they they are able to even even outside of our leads there's a lot of playing off each other and quick dialogue this is this is a snappy story at time it is it's it's a it's a well-written piece it's got a lot of great dialogue a lot of great interactions written by david s ward um, okay, and and seeing uh, these, this is just one of two movies that Redford and Newman made together, and those two movies are regarded by some as the best two movies either of them made because they they're very much in sync. I think in terms of actors, they play off one another very well, and the only time it's not super believable is when they are really at odds with one another and they're really disagreeing, and it's. It for some reason to me that's when it starts to look like Robert Redford pretending to be mad at Paul Newman as opposed to these the, the characters really bringing me in. Which it doesn't take me totally out of the story. It just reminds me. Oh yeah, I'm watching a a Robert Redford and Paul Newman movie and Robert Shaw playing uh, Lonigan. That that's also a performance that's worth noting because Shaw is. He is such a character actor. He can can really inhabit these different roles. I mean, he goes on to play the the shark hunter in Jaws, and and they're so distinctive. And they're all all of his roles are tough guys of one kind or another, but there's such a difference between this tough guy and the shark hunter tough guy. Yes, and he actually with with a lot of his. Um... With a lot of his styling, he's actually playing a character that feels more like the the speakeasy ru- running uh, prohibition era kind of yeah. mob boss character. So he plays this right this right kind of old stolen money instead <laughs> of our new our our newer upstart young stolen money kind of guys, <laughs> and he. He, he almost feels like he's out of a different movie every once in a while, and that works because it makes him a a nice target who stands out in the room every time he's there. And that you know, you raise a good point there, and that is the the distinction between the to- kinds of criminals that we're seeing, mm-hmm. and each of them seems to believe that they are the virtuous kind of criminal. That the the grifters, they're out there and they're cheating people fair and square. And a mark falls for it. Well, that's the mark's problem. And I'm just taking them for some money. 
Whereas Lonigan sees that as the lowest of the low, and he is being a, a stand-up businessman, and people know where they stand with him, and he is he may kill people to take over their operations, but that's part of how his business works. And he is a, a businessman whose business happens to sometimes involve killing and robbing. Mm-hmm. And and Gondorf is a little bit more a director in that sense. Yes. He is as much he is as much here for getting to or conductor, I guess. He's he's as much for being able to orchestrate this brilliant performance <laughs> and to the love of the craft of it as he is the target at the end. Yeah. And even for him though, it's still about convincing someone to hand over their money as opposed to using force or intimidation to get somebody's money out of them. Mm-hmm. If I can get you to hand me that, we're all good. <laughs> I don't want to have to take that. Right. That's not me. That would be Kinda. wrong. But if you're going to give be wrong. it to me, hey, you can give it to me. Yeah. <laughs> Loves to roll persuasion checks, never likes to use intimidation checks. Very clear <laughs> distinction. That's all those D&D it. players can understand. <laughs> But yeah, we get to watch this all play out. We get to watch things things link together. And I I yeah, I don't want to spoil how this all ends and <laughs> right. what what happens once all the once all the pieces are on the board and all of them shift position. And it's not an overly long movie. I don't think it's it's an overly long movie by the standards of the time or even today. It's it's no, a it's, little it's, over 2 hours. Yeah, it's 100, uh, 129 minutes, and it, it it keeps its pace pretty well throughout yeah, that, I'll say. There are a few times when, during the movie, I start to feel like it's slowing down. But even mm-hmm. those points, they they pay off. There was a reason why we took a pause here. There's a reason why we lingered on what seemed like it could have been a throwaway scene because a character we meet turns out to be more important or because something about the setup that we slowed down to pay attention to turns out to be very important. It has chapter breaks, as we've mentioned before, and the fact that I could, I feel like you could pause, bookmark this like a book at that chapter break and come back as long as you could, and as long as you remembered where things were, they are each distinct enough sections that is interesting and not something I'm used to in both movies like this in general or with a a heist kind of story where it's your flow is so important. The fact that this this dips and rises enough to have literal chapter cards like that says something about how carefully constructed it's built, that it can do that without losing pace. You know, especially with those those clear chapter breaks. If this were being made today, it's one of those movies where if it was being made today, I think it would probably have been made as a prestige streaming TV series. Yeah. Now, I don't know that it would have been better. I think it's better to immerse yourself in this world for two hours and change than to have to come back to it every week. But I think that's probably how it would have been made today if it were made today, just because it is structured so episodically. Shall we dive into our final questions with that as the lead in then? You know, I guess so. Yeah. That kind of teased that up. Oh, yeah. So uh, we've got The Sting from uh, from 1973, directed by George Roy Hill, starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Yeah. 
Screen or no screen? I'm saying screen. I very much enjoyed this. It definitely hits hits that thing I like. It. I admit, it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea, partially because I was saying how stylized it is. If that style doesn't hook you early, it's not going to stay with you. I can see someone saying, mm, no, I didn't like the taste of it, and dropping off. But that's fine. If If it gets you early screen it all because this is going to be a fun ride in my opinion i agree definitely screen and be prepared that even though it has comedic moments it's also got some very heavy moments. oh this gets it's, really heavy sometimes it's more of a mix in tone than a lot of modern movies are you can't trust it to be you know a, a comedy versus a heavy drama it's it's definitely a mix so but but you'll you'll kind of know if that that mix that combination of tones works for you pretty early in the movie, as you say. Mm -hmm. So I, of course, say screen. This is a classic. Uh, it influenced so much. It and it, it broke such new ground at the time. Absolutely, you got to watch this movie. Oh, yeah. And that, that, that ability to be deep and have that variety of tones is why, as we go into our revive, reboot, and rest in peace, I have to note something terrifying. Yeah. And that's the fact that there is a sequel. There is, isn't there? Yeah. And while the sting, I, I usually don't use like other places review scores in our episodes, but the, the sheer right. difference here is important to note. While the sting is labeled a comedy drama and has a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes, the sting too is labeled as a pure comedy and is one of the holders of a Coveted? Let probably not a, a notable zero percent. Yeah, this is a sequel it's... written by the same guy that apparently is almost an entire hundred percent swing away from the original, which is terrifying. Yeah, it's and it's it's the sequel is filled with people who they should have known better, or unless every one of them looked around, it was a con. Every one of them looked around and said. Well, if this guy's involved, it must be okay. You know, if Paul, if, if David S. Ward is directing it, it must be okay. If, if Carl Malden is in it, well, you know, I can be in it too. And Carl Malden is thinking, well, hey, it's good enough for Jackie Gleason. I'll be in it. Dang it. You even called what one of my comments was going to be. Because you just <laughs> called that? it a con. And I'm going to tell you this. <laughs> I do not think this needs a, uh, a reboot. I think that this movie on its own is just fine. I, agree. I could see revival, and one of the methods I suggested is the sequel being such a mess. The idea of setting up a story where the sequel was a con would be a very funny oh, the, story, because the the the, 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 the layered aspects of cons <laughs> in this movie means that a con about making a sequel about the movie that's a con is the sort of fun meta this could do. I I was also like, I like that. yeah I was also thinking like just the idea of having a story where do a modern one but it's a book on how to pull one of these written by Gondor <laughs> and someone's following the recipe book and making it and almost running a ju wild reference here almost running a uh, a uh, Juliet and Julia. <laughs> where you cut back and forth from now to then and someone's pulling another one of Gondorf's uh cons <laughs> in the modern day in parallel 
could have been fun. But the idea of, of setting the sequel, which is so bad, as the grift was something I liked enough that I wanted to bring it up. Oh, that is great. It's all about the con of how did we convince... And how, how do we get you know, Jackie Gleason, Mac Davis, Terry Garr, um, Carl Malden, Oliver Reed? How do we get all these people in a in a movie unless they were in on the con and it was just somehow a way to get a big chunk of money out of this would be movie producer they had a grudge against? Exactly. That that would be fun. I don't know if it has to be related <laughs> to the Sting anymore, but it it. In some ways, this is one of those like fertile soils of inspiration for a whole lot of other <laughs> heist movies and con movies of that kind, which could be fun. And this is one of the things that watching a movie like The Sting gets you into. You start to think, oh, is that real or is that part of the con? Because he has to convince somebody of this so that they believe that, so that they're willing to do the other oh, thing. Oh, yeah. It it, it's a movie that changes the way you look at the world for a few minutes or a few hours after this movie might need to go on a list of like required viewing for good dms <laughs> because if you yes. if you want to run a tabletop game this movie's ability to have that that layered storytelling and that uh that kind of wild headspace it can put you in is brilliant for that <laughs> Yeah, I th- I think you're right about that. In in the end, as fun as it is to think about some of those weird sequel ideas, my I come down as as rest in peace. I can you understand don't need more of this movie. It is it's such a gem, the way it's crafted. People should go back and watch it, but they don't need more of it. I want this movie to be uh, to be cut up and then uh, scattered into the field and grown like like a like mushroom cultivation, where you can just have a bed of a dozen <laughs> of, of other movies like this. In that sense. So here's hoping. And and it did have a lot of influence down the years. In other movies in the 70s, you go to things like Now You See Me. You can certainly argue that Now Me Now You See Me is not as good a movie as The Sting, but I don't think it would have happened were it not for The Sting. Oh yeah. And it is definitely had it's this was a big this was a very award-winning movie. Yes. And so it had impact in terms of, you know, a lot of the editing, as we were describing, a lot of the costuming and sound uh, and soundtrack aspects really did like help update and change things. Well, I'm glad I get a, got a chance to show this to you. I knew it was going to be one of the ones you like, because you like those plots where lots of things fit together this way. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, I love a good, a good con story like this. So this was fun, and we will be back in a couple of weeks with uh, with more tales of media from the 20th century. I think so. In the meantime, Dad, where can they find you online? You can find me at bymatthewporter.com or bymatthewporter.omg.lol. And you'll also find links there to you know, whatever I'm doing online, including my YouTube channel, where if you like to hear me talk about movies, I talk about more movies on the Draft House Diary. And Ian, where can people find you? I can be found at itemcrafting.com and itemcrafting.omg.lol as well. And you can find the podcast at immproject.com, and that's where you'll find uh, all of our back episodes, including our previous episode that was about the natural. And there you'll also find links to our contact page and our Discord. Uh, we'd love to hear from you there. We, you'll also find links to our Patreon. If you support us there, you help keep the podcast going, and you also get bonus audio content. 
And uh, you'll also find a link to our store if you like things like t-shirts and coffee mugs and notebooks and stuff. Exactly. But most important, if you want to support the podcast, uh, the best way to do it is to continue listening, to uh, rate and review on uh, iTunes, and to tell your friends about it. And most important, thank you very much for, for listening. We really appreciate it, and we hope you'll be back soon. In the meantime, go find something new to watch.